Try a flexible payment option to boost your firm's finances. LawPay is excited to offer client credit, a legal fee lending solution powered by Affirm. Designed specifically for the legal industry, client credit allows your clients to pay for services over time while you collect 100% upfront. Your firm is never responsible for late or non-payments, and your clients will always know exactly how much they owe and when they'll be done paying, without worrying about late fees, penalties, or hidden interest. Learn more about the payment option legal clients are asking for at lawpay.com slash client credit. This is Brief Encounters with the DC Bar Communities. I'm Alex Reed. I'm a partner at Baker Hostetler and chair of the National Tax Exempt and Charitable Giving Teams. And I'm joined today by Danielle Hawley, who's the Dean of Howard University School of Law. Hello, Danielle, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Alex? I'm just fine, thanks. So Danielle and I went to college together, and we've both pursued careers in nonprofits and civil rights. And I wanted to uh, have a conversation with you today, Danielle. You've just had a commencement at the law school and a hooding ceremony and uh, some esteemed guests. And it's uh, maybe a moment to reflect on your journey to where you are today. Absolutely. Yeah, we just had a great commencement at Howard University. President Biden was our keynote speaker for commencement. And then we had Senator Raphael Warnock with us for our hooding ceremony at the law school. So it was a wonderful weekend. And commencement always provides a great time to reflect on the previous year, but also, you know, journey in academia. I started teaching in 2002. So this is year, what is that? That's year 21. (laughs) So that's year 21. Your academic career can go to the bar now. Exactly. My academic career can go to the bar. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So rewinding to college days, how did you get into legal academia and and civil rights from, uh, you know, our days in college? That's a great question. You know, really, I was born into it. My father is a law professor, and he spent 51 years teaching. And most of that time, about 48 of those years, he spent teaching at Thurgood Marshall School of Law. So when my entire you know, childhood growing up, I grew up in a civil rights lawyering kind of environment, met Thurgood Marshall when I was really, really young. You did. Yes. And just, wow. you know, really had the opportunity to be around that law school, which was a very racially diverse law school, Black students, Latino students, Asian students in Houston, Texas, and a very much a law school devoted to producing incredible civil rights lawyers. Oh, that's fantastic. So unlike most kids, you were steeped in the traditions of justice from an early age. Absolutely. My dad was a criminal law, criminal procedure evidence professor. So heard a lot about criminal justice, uh, criminal law reform, And those themes were just part of the regular backdrop of, you know, dinner conversations and, you know, the themes that undergirded kind of the life of our community at Texas Southern University. That's so interesting. Yeah, I uh, came at it from a different perspective, but also steeped in a way from from my own childhood because my brother was born with Down syndrome. Mm. And so there was this element of, you know, helping individuals with disabilities and seeing the world through the lens of people who are who suffer discrimination and can't participate in society in the same way mm-hmm. as others. So there's a, a sort of a sense that we have a duty to help one another. Absolutely. Yeah. So 
So that's great. So then, then college, and what did you study in college? So I was a history major and I ah. have to, I'm always such a proponent for people being history majors. I feel like it's the best major yes. you can be. Alex, what major were you? I was a philosophy major, although I was kind of jealous of the history majors <laughs> because my favorite professor was David Brian Davis. Oh, he was amazing. He yes. was amazing. And he he taught a class I took, it was called American Intellectual History. Mm. And he kind of tied together the kind of genealogy of thought in the American pragmatist movement, uh, Henry James and William Sanders Peirce. And I enjoyed that class so much. I took more classes from him. And, you know, of course, he was one of the great scholars of the history of slavery. And I ended up being his uh, assistant over my first summer, where I actually got a little bit scared off from academia because my job was basically to read as many books as I could all summer and write him summaries of the books, <laughs> which was pretty overwhelming. It was amazing, but overwhelming. I took probably, that's that's an incredible assignment. Very, <laughs> It sounds overwhelming to me even now. Yeah. I took one of my favorite and probably most influential classes I took in college, one that still impacts me today, which was Slavery Through the Ages, where I didn't know very much about anything other than chattel slavery here in the United States. And so reading about systems of slavery throughout the ages was a huge, had a huge impact um, yeah. on my thinking about the world and my thinking about the experience of Black Americans here in the United States. And so I will never forget that course. And what a legendary, you know, academic and yes. historian. I mean, and a really, really nice person, too. So I yes. think he was one of the people. We actually had a lot of professors at that time. Uh, David Blight was another one who, you know, I just saw Kathy Cohen, that you could be an incredible academic and also a very nice person. It didn't mean that you had to be, you know, kind of superstar diva academic. I know. I always feared that uh, the play Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was real life, that like <laughs> yeah. that's what academics were like. Yeah. Like playing the game of which is the most embarrassing book that you have not read. That's right. That's right. <laughs> now, we had a lot of fantastic professors at that time. Outstanding. And so... From there, you went straight to law school? I did. I was what one of my professors called a 17th grader. Frank Michaelman used to call <laughs> us the 17th graders. It amazes me now, thinking back on it, how little life knowledge I had when I went to law school. <laughs> right. I don't know if I'd ever filed my taxes yeah. at that point because I had worked so little right. before. You know, I had done some fellowships. I did the American Bar Foundation Fellowship. I did a Mellon Ford Fellowship. But I really had never worked in the real world when I went to law school. So that's why when people ask me, you know, should you go straight to law school? My answer is always, you know, it works for some people. But the truth is, a year or two of experience doesn't, I think I would have doesn't gotten hurt. more out of the experience of law school if I'd had a little bit more life experience. Yeah, I hear you. That said, I, I think law school is to be commended for everyone. I mean, I felt like having studied philosophy, I was it was so all over the place. and then. Law school was, by comparison, so rigorous. Right. I felt like it made it easier to do philosophy after thinking about it from the perspective of law. Absolutely. Did you go straight to law school? I worked for a year as a paralegal oh, great. because I was worried about what the practice of law was going to be like. So, so I went to the belly of the beast and was a, a corporate paralegal at Sullivan and Cromwell oh, in New York. Goodness. I figure I'd, I'd just like, fire. I'd just go right into the fire and <laughs> see what that was like. And that's where I learned that being a, a tax lawyer was a, was a good thing because mm -hmm. one of my projects was to just to hand the tax lawyer the papers 
and put them outside his door and then get them in the morning and just put whatever words he'd written into the document because they said, we don't know what it means, but just just do it. It's like magic. I was like, oh, that's that's cool. <laughs> I got to I got to learn what that is. Exactly. So you were a practicing civil rights lawyer as well? No. So when I graduated from law school, I went to practice at a firm in Houston that was known at the time as Fulbright and Jaworski, uh, yeah. which is now Norton Rose Fulbright. And I was an antitrust and securities lawyer. Okay. And probably the reason that I went into that practice, it was at the time it was called the A-Team um, in the Houston office, and it was a complex litigation team. And I knew that ultimately I wanted to be a civil procedure professor and felt like going into a complex litigation practice was the best experience I could get in a short period of time in civil procedure. And I was absolutely right. So I learned all of the key, you know, motions practices. I learned discovery practice really quickly. And it gave me, you know, the footing that I needed when I went into teaching only a few years later. Oh, that's great. That is something I still is on my bucket list is, is really getting deep with procedure. I learned it to appreciate it, though. I took an English civil law history course mm. and learned about the writ system, which is really where all of these bizarre procedures come from. It sort of makes sense when you think about presenting a piece of paper to the Lord sitting in a courtyard, <laughs> and maybe you're granted permission to enter, and maybe you're not. Exactly. Interesting stuff. So then you went, and what did you start writing about? So when I started at my first law school that I taught at was Hofstra Law School in New York, and I knew that I wanted to write about education and knew I wanted to write about civil rights. So when I definitely knew I wanted to become a law professor is I took a class in college called Blacks in the Law, and it was taught by a Connecticut Supreme Court Justice, Sterling Norcott. And we saw a movie called The Man Who Killed Jim Crow. And it was about Charles Hamilton Houston and his work with students like Thurgood Marshall. And I eventually wrote my senior thesis on Howard's Law School from 1929 to 1935, kind of the inner workings of a university that led them to, you know, really forming LDF, what became NAACP LDF. And then so I wanted to write in that same genre. So my first article that I wrote was about interveners in the affirmative action cases in Michigan, in Gratz and Grutter. And that kind of kicked off a period. Affirmative action is one of the things that I've always been interested in intellectually and personally. And I wrote a lot about that. And my scholarship continues to be about anything about the governance of education and the way that we think about who is entitled to education and then the rules that follow from those ideas and perceptions. Wow, that's fascinating and so hot right now. Yes. With whatever is going to come out of the Supreme Court in next month, maybe? Yeah, well, probably, you know, in about five weeks. No in about fate of affirmative weeks. action. Yes. Wow, that's going to be really, really interesting. Alarming, interesting. We'll see. Yeah, I think we're at just a really interesting time period right now. We're seeing, I mean, Florida just passed a higher ed bill that restricts the use of state funds for uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're obviously, you know, in a period where we're seeing the passage of laws that restrict teaching about race, et cetera. So I think, you know, we're in a period where there's a lot of struggle around the history of race in our country and also around 
how we will compete in a world in which the United States is increasingly racially and ethnically diverse. But there's a lot of contest around how that plays out in our schools, in our K-12 schools, in higher ed, and in our workplaces. Yeah, it's a really fascinating time. And, and this tension between governments on the one hand and nonprofits on the other who are trying to help ameliorate discrimination. Right. And I'm very interested in, in this topic because I feel like it is, is so deep in the American constitutional system with a Bill of Rights and civil rights, civil freedoms. And what powers does the government have to restrict those directly on citizens and indirectly through nonprofits that help citizens? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your work on the way the history of civil rights nonprofits has impacted nonprofit law, because I think it is definitely, you know, the there's this parallel Howard University School of Law and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, now known as LDF. Obviously, our, the founder of LDF was Thurgood Marshall, and he worked hand in hand with Charles Hamilton Houston and many others, obviously Jack Greenberg and Constance Baker Motley, all the other incredible civil rights lawyers of that time. But it had really serious consequences on how we think about nonprofits, the pushback that came from organizations like the NAACP and its legal arm had, you know, really has impacted the way we think about nonprofit law now. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'll, let me let's go back in history a little bit to talk about some of the efforts of nonprofits and how they've butted heads with the government. So, let's talk about 1930. There's a case, Slee versus Commissioner, Second Circuit case, where there was a Catholic organization, the American Birth Control League, and the holding of that case was that gifts to this birth control league were not deductible because this, uh, you know, this organization was engaged in propaganda, engaging in dissemination of controversial propaganda is not charitable activity, and therefore the contributions weren't deductible. So that kind of idea about, hmm, you know, is the nonprofit really doing what it says, or is it just engaging in, you know, destructive propaganda yeah. in the contraception, birth control, obviously the parallels with the contemporary abortion rights exactly. movement are like right there, you know? Right. So that case got codified in the 1934 Revenue Act. So there was another fight in the New Deal era when the National Economy League was fighting about whether to pay pensions to veterans of wars, you know, American veterans. And they thought this is going to be too expensive. They were, they were trying to push back on efforts to pay veterans benefits. And Congress got upset with this activism and said, you know what? Nonprofits can't lobby. If you do too much lobbying, you, you're not a nonprofit. That's just not a thing that we're going to allow. So that's when the, the restriction on lobbying activity of C3s came into being. Then you move a little bit further into the 1950s. You have Senator Johnson of Texas was very displeased to be called a godless commie and a dupe <laughs> by, by some nonprofits in the, uh, in the primary, the Democratic primary in Texas. And so he, when he won his primary and got back into the Senate, he introduced what's called the Johnson Amendment, which says that nonprofits cannot 
engage in political campaign intervention or else poof, they lose their tax exempt status. One statement of endorsing a candidate and you lose your tax exempt status, which is like an impossible to enforce rule, but nevertheless has been the rule since the 50s. And then, then you get to the 1960s when the civil rights movement is really, really getting going. And you've got freedom riders coming from the North and, you know, trying to desegregate the South and uh, riding buses and school desegregation. And, you know, of course, the Civil Rights Act was passed. And then there were some assassinations, Martin Luther King and President Kennedy. And there were riots, you know, here in D.C., of course. There was one in, in Cleveland as well, the, the Huff Street riots. And as an outcome of those, the Ford Foundation in New York made a big grant to a group called the Congress for Racial Equity and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And what the purpose of that grant was, was to support Black voter registration drives in Cleveland, because part of the complaint was, we don't have any representation here, you know, burn it down. You know, and so the Ford Foundation said, well, let's try to help people get registered and vote, get some representation. And that was very offensive to the Southern segregationists, led by the very, very powerful House Ways and Means Chair Wilbur Mills from Arkansas. And he and the other segregationists from the Southern Bloc pushed in the 1969 Tax Reform Act to limit the power of private foundations to do all sorts of things, including engage in any lobbying and do any kind of voter registration drives that had a partisan nature to them. And we still live with these rules today. So that's kind of a, a history of you know nonprofits trying to change the world and when the powerful vested interests get wind of it, they push back with restrictions and legal restrictions on nonprofits. Yeah, I mean, I think it shows the power of nonprofits, right? So it does. The fact that Congress would get so interested in the work of the Ford Foundation that they wanted to do with CORE and SCLC, what we see with the Catholic birth control organization, I think it just represents that nonprofits are one of the most important tools that we have in society to really shift society. And that can be in whatever direction you're thinking about. So I think about all the nonprofits that have worked to end racial progress over the years and all the nonprofits that are working right. to end reproductive rights for women or to end affirmative action. It works. Nonprofits are, I think sometimes when we think nonprofits, what we think of is progressive nonprofits. Right. But we know that conservative nonprofits are incredibly powerful also. So nonprofits, I think, are something that have to be thought about and understood when we think about the way that we see change and shifts in society. And then the tax law reflects how powerful and how scared the, our legislators may be of yeah. the power of these organizations. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing I've determined based on a career with nonprofits is that every single nonprofit is doing something controversial because the idea of having a mission mm -hmm. is to change the world. And so if the world were good as it is, there wouldn't be a need right. for nonprofits. I thought that was and... so interesting you describing the 1930s case where they said it's not charitable work if it has a viewpoint. I was like, but all charity work has a viewpoint. Exactly. Because why would you be doing charity work if you believe that things are fine as they are? There's no reason to do charity work. So you have to have a mission statement. You have to have a reason to be doing this work. And that work is going to have a viewpoint, even if it's something simple like we should end poverty. Yeah. But that's right. a viewpoint. 
the hungry should be fed. Right. That's that's very controversial. That's pretty radical. In fact, whole religions have been founded right. on that idea. <laughs> exactly. So you can't do charitable work without a viewpoint. You have to, everyone who starts a nonprofit has a mission statement, has values that they are trying to spread and promote in the world. Now you sit on a lot of boards, right? That's a, a bit of a hobby of yours. I know you're you're on the the Watson Institute at Brown. You're the co-chair of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Tell us a bit about your your yeah. board service and some of the other boards you serve on. You know, so I'm really passionate about the work of nonprofits, and so I've really spent a lot of my kind of outside time from work uh, sitting on nonprofit boards. I currently sit on the board. I'm the co-chair of the board of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. I sit on the board of the Middle School for Math and Science here in D.C. on the LSAC board, Watson Institute uh, for Brown University, and probably the most impactful board service that I had is when I lived in Columbia, South Carolina. I met the leader of a very small community nonprofit called the South Carolina HIV AIDS Council. And they were having trouble getting experts, so lawyers, finance people, to sit on their board because it was an HIV AIDS organization in South Carolina, which was still controversial in 2005 when I lived there. The idea of being associated with the nonprofit that was associated with the LGBTQIA community was something that a lot of people who serve on nonprofit boards did not want to be affiliated with. And so I was really enthusiastic to join the board, eventually became chair of that board, and it became a critical leadership experience for me that then led me to thinking more about entering academic leadership, which I did probably, you know, five years after I joined uh, the South Carolina HIV AIDS board, I became associate dean of the law school, and the two were very tied together. I learned a lot about finance, HR, all those things that law professors don't do on a day-to-day -day basis, but I learned right. them by doing board nonprofit service. Oh, that's great. Yeah, there's, you know, as a tax lawyer, I didn't have a full appreciation of governance, which is what you're describing, the activities of, of boards, until I realized that the tax laws I was learning and applying to nonprofits were really governance rules. And what's amazing and interesting about governance is that it's private law. You're creating laws for an organization, an internal legal system. You write a policy that's effectively the statute that governs the conduct of just your organization. But that's extremely important. That's like a whole world to everyone involved in your organization. So you have to be as careful and as thoughtful as any drafts person writing a statute for the whole nation. There's no difference in complexity and impact with who you're writing the laws for. It's it's the same process. Yeah, I think one of the things that I discovered really early on in working in a small, you know, community nonprofit, these are not, you know, the same as working for the Red Cross or, right. you know, huge nonprofit organizations, things like bylaws, yeah. which are the beginning of really the cornerstone of good governance and then the cornerstone of good day-to-day -day management of the nonprofit. A lot of nonprofits don't have great yeah. bylaws, don't have anyone who's really a governance expert on their boards. And so I spent a lot of time rewriting the full bylaws. And I think some people saw it as a technical step, something that, you know, only the lawyers on our board were interested in. I recruited a lot of other lawyers to our board. But my, you know, I've seen over time working in nonprofits that the writing, drafting, redrafting, paying attention to, you know, the functioning of the bylaws is a huge part of how you know whether a nonprofit is being well run 
whether it's successful, whether the projects it's working on are going to be successful, that kind of starting at good governance is an incredibly important part of, you know, whether a nonprofit is meeting the goals that it wants to meet. Yeah, that is so fascinating. I agree with you that a lot of people underappreciate how important that is. But anyone who's been through the fire of a board fight knows how crazy things can get when the governance isn't clear and how it can be used to advantage or disadvantage one of the warring factions. <laughs> sort of takes the pessimistic mind of a lawyer to see what can go wrong. Absolutely. But whatever you can imagine can go wrong <laughs> times that times five. And that's what can go wrong. It's yeah. interesting that, you know, when people say, oh, you know, we don't need to write about that. That can't happen. I'm like, huh, it absolutely oh. can happen and does happen. And it's interesting, you know, Lawyers Committee is such an interesting board because it was founded during the time period that you're talking about. So in 1963, yeah. we're celebrating our 60th anniversary. In 1963, President Kennedy decided that we needed a whole group of private lawyers to help pursue civil rights that the Department of Justice was not going to be able to do this on their own. They would need the private bar to really work on issues like fair housing, educational equity, to work on voting rights, et cetera. So he founded the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and we're over 300 lawyers who are deeply committed to doing that work, the private bar now. So even when you think about things like the Maryland HBCU lawsuit, where Maryland eventually had to agree to settle and agree to give more equitable funding to the Maryland HBCUs. That wasn't pursued by DOJ. That was done a 10-year litigation that was done by LDF and Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and eventually has benefited citizens all over the state of Maryland because Lawyers Committee did that work. That's so interesting and, and a really important point that sometimes the government can also work with nonprofits right. as a force multiplier to do things that the government can't or won't do <laughs> to help bring about change. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, Lawyers Committee, I think, is one of those great examples of now. I can't even imagine what would happen if a president of the United States said, oh, I'm going to, you know, help form a nonprofit that will then do a particular kind of litigation work, right? you know, from a viewpoint, right, that yeah. we should have more civil rights for all Americans. But that was, you know, at the time, I think President Kennedy thought, you know, this is such a controversial idea that we may not be able to accomplish it inside the government. So let's get some private hands on deck. But I think about that concept now, it was such a great idea, but one that I think would be really difficult, you know, to pursue in our, you know, incredibly polarized political environment. I mean, that was an incredibly polarized political environment, too. But I think even more so now the concept of it, a lot of people are shocked when they hear that a nonprofit like ours was conceived by and really founded by a president. That's yeah, that's really, really interesting. And I mean, George Bush talked about a thousand points of light. Yes you know, which had to do with the nonprofit mm -hmm. sector. But, um, you know, actually founding a nonprofit and encouraging it to go and, and do something to push justice forward is a different matter altogether. Absolutely. Well, it has been such a pleasure talking with you today. There's so much more to say on this subject, but we're going to keep it to a half hour. And I just want to thank you for coming on the program and, and sharing your views with us. 
Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking about the history of nonprofits and doing civil rights work, and just wonderful to have a chance to highlight the ways in which we are still being impacted by tax law decisions that were made, you know, almost 100 years ago now. It's really incredible to think about the way that we are still living with a lot of those things, but also the way that nonprofits have made such a positive and sometimes negative impact on the pursuit of civil rights. Yes, absolutely. Well, keep up your good work and maybe we'll we'll catch up again on another program. That would be great. Thanks so much, Alex. This episode of Brief Encounters was brought to you in part by our sponsor, LawPay. To learn more about Client Credit, a legal fee lending solution powered by a firm, visit lawpay.com slash client credit.